Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome Welcome to the weekend edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, We've kind of changed the focus of these weekend editions. We're trying to feature conversations and content that you won't hear on ESPN in particular. You won't hear on Fox Sports. You won't hear on any corporate media sports broadcast. Or you just won't hear in the media space at all. We're trying to highlight content that helps you understand why Fearless and what we're doing at The Blaze is different, unique, and better than anything you can get anyplace else. And so uh, on Monday, we started talking about the National Feminine League, the NFL, the National Football League, they used to call it. Now it's a powder puff league where you can't hit the quarterback and the roughing the uh, passer penalty on Tom Brady was – the genesis or the foundation of our conversation on Monday. Take a listen. What do you think of my contention? And we'll start with you, Cosell. Uh, my contention that the NFL is trying too hard to please women. I think that's a part of it. Um, I wouldn't go that far, but I think it is the outrage mob and the cancel woke culture that they are trying to codify uh, in my view, look, when, when you get into certain jobs, whether it's coal mining, uh, doing construction jobs or a thousand feet in the air or playing football or being a prize fighter, everyone knows what they are getting into. You are not drafted into this. Now, in the National Football League, you are drafted into an organization, but no one is theoretically forcing you to play. Now, maybe your circumstances and your socioeconomic factors force you to play this dangerous game. But I think for a very long time, most young men that take up this endeavor love the game of football. Now, over a course of time, it may turn into a business, which it is, but there's an acceptable amount where you could say, you know what? As Ray Robinson once said after a fatality in one of his fights, and they said, well, this sport is very dangerous and people can get hurt. And Mr. Robinson said as only he could, sir, I'm in the hurt business. There's a reality to it. You can make the game safer. You could cleanse it a little bit. But the truth of the matter is, it's a violent endeavor. And I've even seen it in boxing where nowadays, if you get hit too much in the middle of a round, at the end of the round, instead of getting your one-minute rest, now you have doctors coming in, calling a timeout, extending the the, uh, rest period. And here's the problem. You might actually extend the beating. If you guy, if you give a guy another 30 seconds in between a round, maybe that guy lasts three more rounds that he shouldn't. And I've seen this in the National Football League. There came a point about a decade ago, Jason and TJ, they outlawed certain hits. And here's what happened. And you can ask Rob Gronkowski about this. The target area started to lower. Guys started getting their knees taken out. You talk to a lot of players, and it's not popular to say anymore. They tell you they would rather take a blow above the chest than below the thigh. Uh, And they only play the game. But, you know, that Tom Brady hit was very interesting. It got me thinking. And I know you and me, Jason, are on the same wavelength when it comes to this. 
this game has changed so much that you almost have to judge players differently from this modern era to what it was. I go back to Joe Montana, who in my mind still is the greatest quarterback ever, not because of the number of rings or anything else. He played in an era where quarterbacks were still football players. The two most violent hits I think I've ever seen on a quarterback was one was in the 86 divisional uh, playoffs against the Giants. Jim Burt bounced Joe Montana off the air. It, it looked like Jazzy Jeff when Uncle Phil would throw him out of the house. Nowadays, Jim Burt would not only get flagged, he'd get suspended, might get arrested for assault. And then the 1990 championship game, Leonard Marshall from the blind side on his third effort just absolutely hammered Montana to a point they could have put a chalk line out on the field of Candlestick Park, and it essentially ended his 49er run. He was out the whole year. And you know what? Neither play was dirty. I'm getting the sense now, guys. Jack Lambert once said years ago famously, what do I think of quarterbacks? Put a dress on them. Okay, maybe we can't do that. Maybe we should just put flags on them and play flag football as it relates to pass rushing. Trying too hard to please, woman. Yes. Um, now, the, there, is, there is some strategy behind this. Between 2008 and 2018, the youth football participation, age 6 to 18, lost 25% of their workforce, for lack of a better word. Right? Uh, high school football is below 1 million kids for the first time since 1998. So it is dropping. Now, the question is, is it dropping because the NFL won't fight back, or is it dropping because of you know, the, all the lawsuits and the idea of the CTE propaganda, which is what it is, right? Because if you know the background of this CTE nonsense, it comes from one study commissioned in 2012. They studied like 101 brains donated from people who were like, I'm pretty sure this guy was crazy. And they said 97% of those guys, turns out they were crazy. And so they say, you know, I bet all football players have CTE. And you're like, well, you didn't study any of the healthy guys, and you didn't study any women's soccer team, and you didn't study any women who never played sports or any local accountants. How do you know everyone doesn't have a level of whatever this is that you're making up? And so a lot of it is propaganda. You've scared these women instead of the NFL saying, this is a violent sport, but this is the safest you can make a violent sport. And we're definitely not cracking until you get us some better information than that garbage. Instead of that, they say, you know what, you're right. This is a terribly violent sport. What we'll do is we'll cover everybody with bubble wrap. We'll make it a, an unwatchable sport. And um, we're really sorry. And I'm telling you, eight-year-old TJ would not recognize this game. When I was eight years old, that was 1998. My favorite player at the time was John Lynch, who wouldn't be in the league today. He's an NFL Hall of Famer that wouldn't have existed. If I turned on today's thing, I'd say, what are they, why are they pushing everybody out of bounds? Why are they just pulling people down? What happened to my favorite player whose job it was to break collarbones? That's what made little TJ fall in love with football. I wouldn't recognize it today. It's, it's not as good a product. I, I, look, the, the league, I think, has a reason to some degree to feel bulletproof particularly after surviving the Black Lives Matter fiasco and they still got the stuff on the uh, field, the end racism stuff. And, the, and again, these are all like sentiments. Who could be against ending racism? Uh, and, and so, it's, but it's a joke. And it's like, let's end air. Let's end, uh, you know, let's end, just put end cancer in there. You know, any of these Jason. things that are, go ahead. That's 
That's the societal version of, hey, you still beat your wife. I mean, <laughs> how are you supposed to really answer that? <laughs> Talk about a catch-22 question, right? I mean, geez. Yeah, but, but they, they have survived that. The whole anti-American sentiment and the people not liking the players, uh, they've survived that and probably feel more bulletproof today than at any time because it's like, Colin Kaepernick turned this league upside down, pissed on all our fan base, pissed on 30 years of marketing that Pete Rozelle had built the league up using. But I think this feminization of the sport and the removing of, of the violence, the competitive violence, is a real threat. The product and, and the belief that we're seeing the ultimate competition is being undermined, and it's just not as compelling uh, w- without, without, the, without the knockout shots. I'm sorry, it's just not as compelling. But Jason, I, I will counter that. As long as you have fantasy football and gambling, the National Football League across five networks, it's still the number one rated television show. And there's still something, my favorite weekends of the year are not when I cover a fight, not at least anymore. Um, It's not even when I go to a football game, which I did this weekend in Miami. Uh, I actually love it. On a Saturday morning at about 7.30, I wake up to watch ESPN game day, and then I watch 14 hours of college football on three or four different screens at a time, and then the next day watch another 10 to 12 hours of National Football League action, and then Monday. I've told you this before. Starting from Thursday on, that's when my weekends begin, right around Labor Day weekend. I'll watch about 30 to 35 hours of football. I think there's a lot of people like me that don't like what the sport is becoming, are frustrated by some of the new rules and regulations, but it's still incredible, compelling television. I mean, Jason, we have to look at the facts. Do I think that that summer of George Floyd overreaction was good for the league? No. But if you actually look at the television ratings right now, there's still nothing else in terms of the athletic realm that comes close to the ratings of the National Football League. And but if you look, look at the Pro Bowl, guys, the Pro Bowl became unwatchable. I grew up in an era where a week after the Super Bowl, they'd go to Honolulu. I think it's called the Hula Bowl. And every player played that game that was selected short of an injury. It was an honor. And guess what, guys? They really hit one another. The last 15 years, that game has devolved in a two hand touch. It was unwatchable. But guess what? Look at the actual ratings. It did better ratings than just about any other live sporting event. So I'm just telling you, the National Football League, I hate to say it, Jason, I think is in a protected realm where no matter what product they put out, guys like me, we still can't get enough. I, I get the ratings for the Pro Bowl remain solid, relatively speaking, but they did cancel it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and so they shouldn't th- have. That to me, well, well I, I'm not oh, sure. I think they should have. I think it, it was a terrible product. Yeah, it, it's, it's <laughs> literally, it's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, and, and I think over the long haul, they canceled it before the ratings finally evaporated. They, right. they could tell which way it was trending, and, and rather than take the PR hit, just end it now. Uh, b- because it's just, I, people tune in to watch great competition, That's right. and, and the competition isn't nearly as great. And I'll t- I didn't get into this in my mono or in my column, but the game is so much easier to manipulate now. Yeah. And eventually these same 
people that are addicted to the gambling and the fantasy football, which is just another form of gambling, they're going to start to lose belief that this is authentic competition. Because you know how easy it would be to fix a game right now if you're a quarterback away that could never be questioned? Just stagger for a moment on the field. Mm-hmm. Take a hit and just stagger for a moment. Get yourself pulled out of the game. Teddy Bridgewater, and again, there's no proof that he even really staggered because I don't think they never could really show the video. But Teddy Bridgewater being pulled out of the game, the Jets won in a blowout yep. because they were down to the third-string quarterback. Any, if I'm take Geno Smith. Is it? Did I get the name? Is it the last name Smith? Mm-hmm. Gino, the quarterback in Seattle, uh, he hasn't made the mega millions. He he the, he never got a Kyler Murray type contract. So if someone offered him the right kind of payday to just take a stagger on the field, the rules will dictate that you can't finish playing that game. Seattle gets crushed. They 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 don't. Is Drew Locke their backup quarterback? Yes. Or I can't. Uh, yes. Yeah. So. I just I think eventually they're going to erode trust in the competition of the league, and and because I'm t- Jerome Bolger's call, I want an investigation of him. Oh, yes. Everybody wants everybody wants uh, the Dolphins investigated for how they handled Tua. I want an investigation of Jerome Bolger. How do you make that call? All right, I hope you enjoyed that. We circled back on Tuesday because on Monday Night Football. Chris Jones gets a strip sack of Derek Carr, and out comes the penalty flag for roughing the passer. And so I wanted everybody to know who to really blame, DeMarie Smith and the NFL Players Association. That's why the league has gone soft. That's why these roughing the passer penalties are coming from out of nowhere. It's because the players are begging for it. They want the league softer. They've got the wrong executive director of their union. Take a listen. Quit blaming the referees for ruining the NFL. Take Jerome Bolger and Carl Jeffers out of your crosshairs. The lead officials flagging defensive linemen for roughing the passer are soldiers following orders handed down from on high. The players, current and former, are responsible for undermining the integrity of NFL competition and feminizing the game. The players chose DeMarie Smith, a beta male with a subversive agenda to lead their union. The players swallowed the anti-Gene Upshaw narrative and decided the NFLPA needed an executive director with no connection to or passion for football. They prioritized leadership that would be adversarial with ownership, aligned with progressive politics, and willing to wage a race war with an industry that produces more black male millionaires than any other. Useful idiots elected a Trojan horse to lead them. Player safety defined Smith's 13-year leadership platform. Like all Marxist ideas, Smith's platform uses the skin of truth to hide the meat of a lie. Sorry for stealing that voting, but I had to. He paves the road to hell with alleged good intentions. He wants to make football safer. It's a virtuous goal but it has its limits. It's the equivalent of making carrot cake less fattening. You remove the frosting, brown sugar, flour, cream cheese, and butter, and before you know it, you're closer to making coleslaw than cake. 
The enemies of masculinity hate football and its perch atop American popular culture. They're waging a long war to turn football into soccer, a sport played at a high level by men and women. Smith serves that agenda. A DC lawyer, Smith is the antithesis of his predecessor, Upshaw, a Hall of Fame NFL player who innately understood the essence of football. The game sells gladiator-style violence to an audience that loves high-risk competition. Upshaw fought for players to earn as much money as possible in exchange for taking the physical risk. He was not unconcerned with the health of players. He simply understood the league's TV partners sell cake, not coleslaw. So who led the overreaction to Tua Tungviola's concussion? Marie Smith and the NFLPA. Smith called for a full investigation of how the Miami Dolphins handled Tua's injury in the game against the Buffalo Bills. Tua left that game with either a back injury or head trauma and returned to finish it. Throughout the history of professional and amateur football, players have returned to games after suffering an injury millions of times. It's not remotely uncommon. Over the last decade, as corporate media have used CTE junk science to undermine football participation, every time a football player gets his bell rung, it's treated as a possible life and death situation. The same thing we celebrate in boxing or mixed martial arts, we villainize on the football field. We pretend that 70% of men who participated in tackle football past high school are at risk of developing dementia by age 60. It's media-induced madness, similar to the fear mainstream media fomented around the COVID flu. The real pandemic is fear. We're being programmed to fear football. Dee Marie Smith is football's Dr. Anthony Fauci. ESPN is CNN. The NFL's concussion protocol is the N95 mask. Who campaigned for the NFL to immediately adjust its concussion protocol after Tua suffered head trauma or a spinal injury on Thursday night football against the Bengals? Dee Marie Smith and the NFLPA. So who is ultimately responsible for referees Jerome Bolger and Carl Jeffers flagging Grady Jar Jarrett and Chris Jones for roughing the passer on routine harmless football plays. Smith and the NFLPA. They caused the hysteria that is rapidly changing the game of football. Troy Aikman complained on Monday Night Football that he was tired of the way the NFL was being officiated, he demanded that the league's competition committee take the dresses off the players. Take a listen for yourself. Here's a call again, or the play again. The ball comes out right there. And the ball is possessed by Jones. He's going to the ground with Carr. His body's there, it's just where it, it is. It's too much. I mean, my hope is the competition committee looks at this in the next set of meetings and you know, we take the dresses off. All right. After watching that same sack strip of Derek Carr, Tony Dungy tweeted, This is not football anymore. I know we have to protect the quarterback, but Chris Jones was recovering a fumble. We have gotten ridiculous with this. Aikman, as a player, and Dungy, as a coach, are both enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. 
Aikman suffered multiple concussions during his playing career. Dungey led defenses that feature concussion-giving hitters like John Lynch, Derrick Brooks, and Warren Sapp. Football is not meant to be a safe space. Removing the hard hits and wrapping the quarterbacks in bubble wrap undermines the integrity of the game. So do all the limits on practice time and practice contact. The game that Troy Aikman played isn't the same one that 45-year-old Tom Brady now dominates. The current game devalues Brady's accomplishments. We're turning Babe Ruth into mighty Mike Mancinko. You ever heard of Mancinko? He's the home run king of softball. He cracked more than 6,000 homers. He's not Babe Ruth. The NFL is fast-pitch softball with a bunch of guys getting Barry Bonds money. This construct fuels a justifiable and unhealthy resentment among retired players. The old guys who actually built the league into a TV powerhouse sit at home nursing their wounds and watching Kyler Murray earn $46 million a season for playing a game they don't respect or recognize. You don't have to be Dick Buckus's age to harbor that resentment. If you played in the NFL 15 or 10 years ago, you have a right to be frustrated. The frustration manifests itself in peculiar ways. The former players aren't mad at DeMarie Smith or the union. They blame the people who the media instruct them to blame. Ownership. It's Jerry Jones's fault. It's Dan Snyder's fault. It's the billionaire owners. It's the white man's fault. He's their daddy. That's not true. This is on the players. They're poor stewards of a game that enriched them. The players followed Colin Kaepernick into the anti-American abyss. The players followed the alphabet mafia into the Black Lives Matter abyss. The players denigrate football, the industry that has produced more black millionaires than hip hop or even the NBA. The players won't defend the game that has been very good to them. They're so controlled by bitterness and envy and social media, they'd rather tear down the NFL than leave the league intact for the next generation. Many of the former players want the NFL to fail. They made their money. They want the ratings to drop and for fans to walk away. They naively and foolishly believe it will hurt the billionaire owners who have a plethora of revenue streams. They don't care that it will deprive the next generation of players from acquiring the life-changing and generational wealth that benefited the former players. The intentional mishandling of the player safety issue is just another version of the long-form okey-doke black liberals find irresistible. DeMarie Smith is football's Lyndon Johnson. Player safety is the Great Society Initiative. The concussion protocol is welfare. And all the beta males chirping on ESPN are welfare queens. Wednesday, as we are prone to do, we changed up, had some Tennessee harmony, and we had Shamika Michelle, Delano Squires, Dave Shannon, and Pastor Anthony Walker all here. And we were talking about uh, the war between black women and black men and the matriarchy versus the patriarchy and how it plays out in the black community. Also, uh, Bryson Gray stopped by the show. You know, you know, guys know Bryson, the rapper that did Let's Go Brandon. 
a heck of a show on Wednesday. Here's some highlights. Am I right for sensing that there is a disconnect, a war uh, between black men and single black women? Is there a battle between people that have a patriarchal view of, of life and people that have a matriarchal view of life? Am I right for thinking that? I think so, but I don't think that it's intentional for everyone. I think for the most part, black men love black women and black women love black men. I think the problem is because some of the ideals and thoughts that have been pushed on us for so many years conflict our very nature. So when you have people pushing that women should be in charge and women are buying into that, I think for a lot of men, especially the ones that want to be obedient to their nature, Nature and know their purpose here in this earth realm, that's going to create conflict and create a problem. And I think where we fail is in verbalizing that in a good way between each other. And so it comes out a lot as, you know, arguments or hate or, you know, just being resentful because we haven't really had the space to have that conversation in, in, in its entirety. She makes an interesting point that I, I want to start because I, I talk about this all the time. I agree with her that there is shared love. I think our issue is, do we know how to love each other? And that's, uh, you know, you hear people all the time say, I love you. But do we define love the same way? And it goes back to a conversation we were having last week, Anthony, about being equally yoked and a biblical worldview on love and how to love each other. And that's where I think the struggle is. I do think there's genuine affection and love, but I think there's a disconnect on how we express and show that love. I absolutely agree. How we define love now uh, is not anywhere close to where the Bible defines love. The Bible defines love uh, in terms of giving, sacrifice, truth. Uh, we define love based on how I feel and based on your agreement with me. So once you start to make me feel bad, you don't love me. Or if you share with, a tr share with me the truth and that truth bothers me, well, you don't love me. Or you don't agree with how I see things, you don't love me. And love biblically is different from what we define now today as far as all the feelings and subjective stuff that, that goes on. Dave? Yeah, yeah, I was trying to think about if I can actually say that black men love black women. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was thinking about that because if a black, if, if I came into your room and you told me I love this thing, let's say it's a, a tennis racket, and I hate that thing and it's a baseball bat, but both of them are being treated the exact same, I don't really know what you mean by love. Mm. Mm. So mm. the way that black men have said that they love black women, but the way that they treat them, they don't stay married to them. They don't have children with them and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They don't make sure that they take the hits for them and make sure they can be moms that stay at home. I'm trying to figure out what they mean by they love them. So I don't know. It's hard for me to see, like you were just talking mm -hmm. about, that expression of love. 
um, love dies for another person, yes. mm. right? The perfect example of love is Christ. Now you tell me you love black people, go die for that woman. Go give up your admiration, the things that you want to do with your life, the things that you want to progress, give that up so that you can uh, take care of a home and raise it. Let her cultivate an environment where she raises human beings. And I'm not seeing that in the community that I love so much. I'm not seeing black men love black women. I'm seeing them treat them like they're the, the very thing that they hate. So I don't I don't understand. I don't know if I can honestly say that, that they love black women because they're not treating them like they love them. Two way street. I mean, is are we being loved properly or, or, or any response to any of that, Delano? Mm, that, that, he yeah, laid not, out a Knox, mouthful. Knox <laughs> took it in a different direction. And I was going to say, but I mean, I think I think the evidence is there if you want to judge it objectively. I mean, we talk a lot about the culture. Um, the types of images that we promote, um, that we put out into the world. Um, if, if a person wants to hear a black woman being degraded and call a B or H, mm. they turn on BET, not Fox News. Um, so for as much Oof. as people talk about, you know, oh, you know, conservatives hate white, uh, black people and so on and so on and so forth. I mean, all of the ways that young kids, particularly young black men, learn, um, you know, or are or, or discipled to degrade and disrespect black women, they get it from black media. Um, I remember one of the things that I've talked about before is for people who are of my generation, BET used to have a show called BET Uncut, which they would run late, late at night. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's back in my pre-save days, uh -huh. right? Sure. <laughs> and um, that, that this Nelly video used to come on Tip Drill. And it was, it was like every video in the 2000s, a bunch of women scantily clad, walking, running around. And there was one point, I'll never forget it, when Nelly took a credit card and slid it down a woman's backside and she started to shake it like an like a ATM machine and money mm. was about to fall out. And that to me, is, that speaks to degradation. That's disrespect. That's, that's not love in today's point. Um, if, if a man loved a woman, he'd say, before I give you a baby, I'm going to give you my last name. But to your point, there needs to be reciprocity there. Um, and I don't see that reciprocity. And I think a big part of it is that our identity, as sort of our cultural identity, has been overtaken by politics. Hmm. And the, the, the party that most black people support, um, you know, the Democratic Party, is functionally a, a gynocracy. It is, it is a hyper-matriarchy in which women lead, men follow, the, the men that are platform tend to be homosexual or, or identify as LGBTQ, and the, the few heterosexual men that are allowed to have a voice in that, in that might party. Might as well be. <laughs> some some might, as, might as well be. But the others who are not have to bend the knee to those other two groups because the, the party's entire apparatus, it, it says we hate the patriarchy, we, we think masculinity is toxic. Every four years, we'll come around to your neighborhood because we need your votes. But outside of that, we really have no use for you. And the degree to which that party has elevated black women and told them that you don't need black men, they've done that through policy, they'll say you don't need him, will be your husband and the father to your children. And now they're doing it through rhetoric. And that's how you get you know, uh, MSNBC hosts talk telling black men to get in line behind black women and vote for Stacey Abrams, or that's how you get, you know, other women, black women save democracy, right? 
So if black women saved democracy in 2020, then what did a black man do? Well, he was a damsel in distress. We saved him too, because that's what we do. So the entire creation order is out of whack. And that is in, in policy, politics, culture, media. Um, and I think we're seeing the fruit of that. What, you know, we're, we're reaping that harvest. Um, and in general, and this is how it always works, my, both my grandfathers were men in the land, you, you reap later and you reap greater. So mm. the, the, the seed is small, yeah. but the harvest is bountiful. But this is not the type of fruit anybody wants to consume. What year, I mean, we played Let's Go Brandon. How old is that? Is that two years old now? Is nah, it? is it? Nah, it's just a year. I think the, the anniversary was like a, like last week, I think. Got you. For Let's so, Go Brandon is that been your most popular song? Oh, no, 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 no. My most popular song is, uh, that did the best on Billboard charts. Right, but the one that probably was the most viral was Trump is your president. Like, I don't care why I perform. When did that come out? Before or after that Let's Go Brandon? Trump is a president, if I'm not mistaken, I could be, came out <clears throat> very late 2019 or early, early 2020. When it first came out, it didn't go viral. It went viral like later. And, and so, and I don't want to crawl all in your business or whatever, but like the success you're having now, it's financially worth it yeah. to your family and to yourself, your parents feel like the whole music thing was been a great investment. Yeah, see, look, see, look. I talk, <laughs> me and my parents talk about it this weekend because they, they saw like the crowd of people that was there to see us in Chicago, a liberal place. People there singing, every, knowing everywhere to the song. But they admit they were wrong. We talked to my daddy, he was like, I was wrong. Because they thought, they thought I was ruining my music career. They thought I was, uh, they thought I was ruining my music career to, to talk about politics. You know what I'm saying? Now, I've been on Billboard charts 30 times. So it's like my parent, my dad, my dad, he'll be like, <clears throat> don't listen to me, son. You was, you was right. I was wrong. So they, they, they like it now. But then they, they love it because they've been to the rallies and they understand how like conservatives treat everybody, no matter, you know what I'm saying? So all the perceptions, even some perceptions that I had has been like debunked in real life. He, hearing you, talking to you, watching some of your interviews, again, I'll use that saying from Kansas City from the soil, I'll use it again in a different way in terms of like, and I hate to even say these words, but you'll know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You grew up black, yeah. around black people, yeah. friends, the whole, your holes, and, and a lot of conservatives get accused of, oh, you, you ain't really part of the culture, part of the black, black people. That is not the case for you. Oh yeah, they can't, it's impossible. They can look it up. WSSU, HBCU, look who was performing with J. Cole at the homecoming. North Carolina A&T, one of the most popular HBCUs in the country. Look who's performing at one of their homecomings. NCCU, HBCU, look who's performing at their homecomings. I went to public school, I went to High Point, North Carolina, look it up. But, but, but like, like I'm, <clears throat> you really can't, you just can't say that. You can't say that. You, like, I'm not the guy you can say that to. <laughs> so I take away all the arguments, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What's your audience like now, though? It's conservative, so of course it's gonna be um, majority white because Still to this day in 2022, most black people vote Democrat, unfortunately. But the demographics are changing. That's what I will say. You see it in your own audience? I see it. I see it. At, at first, at first, you know, the first few shows, you probably couldn't even spot a black person. 
You know what I'm saying? I feel like that's a lot of conservative events, though. But when you come out, I'm talking about even at the show Chicago, still majority, still majority like white, obviously. But when you look into the crowd, there's a lot of black folk out there singing every single word, every single song. I got a lot of I got a lot of people that that's from the south side of Chicago that say they like that they, they like my music too from Old Block. You know what I'm saying? So <clears throat> things are changing. Growing up, who was your favorite rapper? Tupac. Who? Tupac Shakur. Yeah. What's your favorite Tupac song? Me Against the World. <laughs> I was gonna say only guy could judge me, but nah, Me Against the World, easy by far. And as an adult now, who's your favorite rapper? Excluding yourself. Um, I listen to people like Tyson James, who's another Christian conservative rapper. I stopped listening to secular music uh, like two years ago um, because I feel like I was a hypocrite. They're preaching all this Bible stuff, but still, like, I changed my life, but I'm still, like, giving the streams to these people talking about killing, murder, but I'm getting on Twitter talking about stop killing, murder. So, so I stopped listening to that stuff because it, it rides your brain. Um, so I listen to people like Tyson James. Uh, sometimes I listen to Kanye, obviously. You know what I'm saying? But sometimes he still makes degenerate music, too. So, What, what are your thoughts on Kanye, this latest controversy? Well, let me define what latest. His White Lives Matter t-shirt controversy. I love it. And I, the reason why I love it because I understood off the rip what he was doing. You know what I'm saying? He was exposing what was happening. Because they know, if you ask Kanye West, does he think saying White Lives Matter is stupid? He'll say, yeah. He'll say, yeah. But the whole point was to first start a conversation, expose hypocrisy, and then let you know that to show you how stupid something is. Because if you watch his interview, he said, uh, and I see this all the time. You go to a Black Lives Matter rally, <clears throat> the ones I've been to, mostly white people. With Black Lives Matter shirt. I was just in a Chick-fil-A drive-thru. I got Trump stickers and stuff on the back of my car. I saw a lady, white lady with blue hair, all that. You saw like 10 Black Lives Matter stickers on her car. <laughs> so Kanye was like, why do, you, why do we need to know our life matters? Of course our life matters. He was like, so he felt disrespected by it. So he like, okay, I'm black. I'm wearing a White Lives Matter shirt. You need to know your, your life matters too, Dan. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? We talked about Candace Owens. Uh, documentary, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, The Rise of George Floyd and BLM. Uh, Kanye West, Kid Rock, Ray J, all strolled the red carpet at the debut of the film. Lauren Chen and Bryson Gray were there with me at the premiere in Nashville. We had a very good discussion about the documentary and about what's going on with the Daily Wire. Uh, is everybody on board with Candace Owens? Take a listen. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. People are very comfortable saying, black leadership, how come they won't call out their own? How come they won't call out, uh, how come Al Sharpton won't criticize what obvious mistakes he sees in black culture and among black kids? And, and I think there are some people that's saying to Jewish leadership, religious Jew, how, how come y'all won't call out 
this thing that's going on with people claiming your identity and, and have an outsized influence in a lot of things that I think people of faith, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or even Muslim, how come we can't call out this group that seems so bought into this secular culture? Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated issue. I, t I defended Kanye because I believe he writes inartfully, talks a little inartfully, and it was unclear, like what is he really saying? Because I read the tweet and, and I, I read it as him saying, oh, I'm about to criticize these people that are holding me back. I don't hear it as, oh, I'm gonna kill all well, these people. People were saying it was a direct threat to yeah. Jewish people, and I think that's why he got banned. Uh, because of the whole death con thing. A lot of people, oh, that's a threat. He's threatening violence. I don't, I think he actually thought death con was death con. I, and as Candace pointed out, that is a defensive thing. Now, I'm not even saying don't criticize Kanye, but it's like, it's kind of, I think, a little bit troubling how now it seems like the right is just as eager to cancel him over something he didn't even get to finish saying perhaps we may have liked it or may not have. Um, and it's if we can't really claim to be against cancel culture while also doing it for different reasons, but essentially to the same people. Uh, it's kind of disappointing to see that. I'm, I'm used to this. Um, when I got banned on TikTok, when I had 400,000 followers, it was not liberals that banned me. Conservatives that claimed they was conservatives started a hashtag called Cancel Bryson. And they went and reported all of my videos, and it worked. I got banned on TikTok. It wasn't liberals. Liberals had nothing to do with me getting banned. It was conservatives, people that claimed to be conservatives, because I'm the biggest uh, homophobe in history, obviously. So. Mm. But what I, what I like about Candace, and I will say, is that she is someone who does, I don't think you can tell Candace what to say, right? I mean, because there are several issues uh, where she's kind of gone against the drum of what I think maybe other folks of the Daily Wire think. Uh, most recent example is Russia, right? She's very, uh, I guess, against uh, kind of making out Russia to be enemy number one of the United States when, I mean, let's face it, there are bigger challenges facing American people than what Putin is doing, right? And this happened before the invasion in Ukraine. And uh, some of the other folks in the Daily Wire, they're, they're frankly kind of neocons. And I could see maybe some friction with those two viewpoints. But as long as, you know, Daily Wire folks keep letting Candace be Candace, I think that's good. Base you know? Lauren. Base Lauren chain, everybody. I, I, I'm concerned if that's going to continue. When, I, when they don't show up for this documentary, that seems to be an indication of a real problem. Let me, I want to move to the documentary uh, and, and I want to start here. Anybody that's watched this show or seen me talk about Candace and other venues, I have not been the biggest Candace supporter. Uh, you know, I, I support her over Twitter and, and things like that, but you know, I, it would be fair to say I've been lukewarm on Candace. I thought her speech at the before the plane of the documentary was brave, accurate, bold, uh, hit my heart. She talked about God. She talked about family. Uh, she talked about the, the, the corrosion of the education system and all. And she talked about, you know, that we have to lean into our values and things like that. Loved it. And really, for me, and maybe it's because I haven't paid close enough attention, but I hadn't seen her talk about God. 
And I always thought that was like a missing element. And to see her on the stage, big night for her, and to talk about God, loved it. That's why I'm a little bit uh, disappointed that I'm going to have to say I wasn't as thrilled with the documentary as I thought I would be. Uh, I, I did, it wasn't as compelling as I hoped. I'm gonna hold my tongue there because I don't want to color anybody else's opinion. How compelling did you find the documentary? So I think there's so much to be said about Black Lives Matter. And it's easy for me, who did not make the documentary, to say how I would have done it. Um, but the thing with Black Lives Matter is that there's so much going on. You can talk about what the riots happened that took place. You could talk about the media's involvement and in kind of covering for the whole thing, which they did. You could also talk about BLM as an organization. And I think BLM as an organization, there's a lot more that could be said because they have released a manifesto that actually goes into things, how they are for the abolition of the family. And they say this, they're Marxists, they, they, it's part of their identity. Uh, the same with the founders. This is an ideology that has its roots in far leftism and like radical, not just uh, racial politics, but also economic politics. Like they are for essentially getting rid of the entire capitalist system. They are against things like body cams for cops, which if you're actually for police accountability, does not at all make sense. Um, so, you know, that's, if I were to do an expose talking about BLM, I would go into this so people know, hey, this is what your money is going to supporting just as the organization itself. And Candace does what I thought was the most compelling part of the documentary, go into a little bit of a breakdown of, okay, BLM raised $80 million around after George Floyd's death. Where did that go to? She talks about how a lot of it ended up going to trans organizations for some reason. Um, I would love to see, you know, she did this once, show up at the address where they claim it's for black people and do an expose. This is where they say the money is going, but, but it's nothing, right? Uh, I think there could have been more investigative work done in, in that area. I'm not gonna lie, I liked it. I still liked it, I <clears> still liked the it. The reason why. I try to look at it from a lens of somebody like from where I'm from, just watching that probably supported BLM. How would they how would they view it? Right. She showed both sides. She gave her true opinion on her on how she viewed the George Floyd situation. But she also let George Floyd uh, friends paint their picture of George Floyd. And she didn't really combat that in any way. They were talking about him reading the Bible, his favorite Bible verses. She didn't interrupt and be like, no, she let it happen. She did the same thing to Derek, Derek, Derek Chauvin. She let his people paint the picture of him how they want it with no interruption. So I think that was pretty much, I think that was in a, uh, a stance of getting both sides. And then I think she exposed BLM. Because when I saw it, I had to close my eyes a few times, obviously, uh, during the documentary, the stuff they were showing. But it showed you where the money went to. She called every single number and only one picked up. She exposed that they, which we already know, they do pay protesters to come out, things of that nature. But all their money didn't go to nothing, had to do with nothing about black people. It was pure LGBT stuff. That's all the money went to. It's a, it's a LGBT organization. And in the most gangster part though, that I thought was gangster, when we figured out BLM didn't give no money to his roommates, she paid George Floyd back rent and got that car towed. I thought that was gangster. That was a gangster move by Candace right there. I don't know if it came out of her pocket or that wire pocket, <laughs> but it was gangster nonetheless. I would imagine it came out of her pocket. Listen, here's, here's what I'll say. When you're dealing with uh, an issue as complicated, as controversial, uh, and as important as this issue, and this is the journalist in me, and she didn't grow up a trained journalist, but she needs to move herself to the background. 
she was too much in the foreground. And so that which muddies up the issue. And so uh, th this was, it wasn't really a documentary, it was a monologue. And that's why I like the back half of it. Most of it was just her talking, and there was a way, and, and Lauren used the word investigation. What, what should have happened is they should have hired an investigator or two to go out and really, we got these IRS documents, let's go out and really investigate these companies. You can't leave things. When she pointed out that uh, uh, they wrote a check for $2.3 million to a guy that appeared to be a friend of hers, I, we gotta take the word appear out. And someone has to go do the investigation, get to the bottom of that, don't leave, well, you can figure it out or infer and do the investigation. And so a lot of the things she unpacked would have been more powerful if she had been sitting there interviewing the investigator that they hired, who's now unpacking. They cut this check for 500,000 to this transgender group and blah, blah, blah. Again, it's about moving yourself to the background. Dinesh D'Souza, 2,000 mules. He's more in the background. He spread the commentary out, and this, don't anybody hear this as me saying, hey, I, she should have made me a part of the documentary. But what Dinesh did, what Dennis Prager, uh, Charlie Kirk, Larry Elder, somebody I can't remember, they're all sitting around a table and reacting to the information and giving insight and thought. Candace, and again, this is part of the criticism, this is probably a product of being youthful, Probably a product, don't be offended, Lauren, being a woman, liking <laughs> attention, liking the spotlight. Love, she's a beautiful woman. Based. Yeah, she's a beautiful woman who makes love to the camera. I get why she likes being on the camera, but for a documentary on an issue this important, back up, let, let the content, and then streamline the content, because what the documentary should have been is the aftermath. Here's what happened after George Floyd died. Love the part where they explain what happened to the TV reporter in Minneapolis. I hadn't heard about that. Before, very powerful, either. very powerful what happened to this, this is an innocent bystander who had her career ruined for nothing other than being married to the wrong man, uh, who's not Derek Chauvin, just a cop in Minneapolis. Uh, love how they show what happened to the store owner in Los Angeles, store looted, blah, blah, blah loved, would have done it a little bit better, showing the how they've turned where George Floyd got killed into like a shrine for what black Jesus. This that was is so, weird. It's so it's sacrilegious. Yeah, that it's, was weird. It's, it's it's not it's satanic. It's not weird, it's satanic. Facts. <laughs> and, so, Facts. and so this is the aftermath of George Floyd. All of this is very and then when you throw on and you know why they did this? Because it would have connected to the what is a woman deal. They did it in support of the transgender and gay movement and uh, black people, you are being used in this satanic movement that's turned George Floyd into Jesus and is empowering the transgender and LGBT and the alphabet mafia, you're being used. That would have been a more, I didn't, George Floyd's friends, nah, I didn't need it. Way too early in the documentary, there's a defense of Derek Chauvin. 
I actually agree with Candace. George Floyd more than likely died of a drug overdose. But don't put that in the front of the movie if you want people to, to engage. You done pissed off a bunch of people and they like, peace out. Well, that's the thing. Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, what happened in that trial? I love true crime. That's its own movie. That's its own movie. If you actually want to get into all of this, and we have people who have tried to replicate the knee, uh, which is, was a, a defense or a tactic that the Minneapolis police was teaching them to do at the time. Now it's been obviously taken off the books. But there was so much more you could have said into that that I agree. If, if you're going to kind of come to Derek Chauvin's defense, you, I, I, I think you, you got it. Give your reasoning first, because otherwise there are people who have been told he's a white supremacist murderer. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I see that. <clears throat> oh, no, it was way that. too. Yeah, I, 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 I watched that. that and I was like, oh, ain't nobody. People are turning it off or they'll hear about it and never watch. If you want to get to the back end of this and then say after you've given here's the aftermath and then tell me a little bit about George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and this guy's in prison for 22 years and the guy died of a drug overdose. And again, cause they didn't even put it, you know, I didn't know this, but someone had to say, you know, Derek Chauvin weighs 165 pounds. Mm-hmm. He's a little guy. Yeah. yeah. And 165 six, pounds. Six, six? No, Derek Chauvin. Oh, Derek Chauvin, Derek George I'm Floyd, George Floyd, weighed 240. And again, he pretty yoked up based off of what the pictures I, I saw. Derek Chauvin weighed 165 pounds. You look at that picture and you think a 220 pound man has got his knee 165, that's a small dude. Yep. It's a whole, but. That's like me when I was pregnant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it just, this thing could have been unpacked more powerful. And so I guess what I would say at the end, my respect for Candace Owens has elevated based off this whole thing, what she's dealing with, doesn't have the kind of support, it doesn't seem at the Daily Wire that she should. She's certainly independent, she's strong-willed loved her speech last night. She needs help. She needs help. And, and she may not know that she needs help, uh, but she does need help. And that's no shot at anybody uh, that is helping her, but she needs better help. We ended the week on Friday talking about Todd Bowles, and how he handled the media when they tried to make a big racial deal out of his uh, game this weekend with the against the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin uh, and Todd Bowles squaring off. Everybody wants to make this big racial deal out of it. Todd Bowles doesn't. I love it. And we talked about it. Steve, perhaps for a different set of reasons than mine, uh, were you inspired by the way Todd Bowles handled that situation? Oh, I, I thought it was spectacular. Uh, look, he, I don't know if he's ever going to win a Lombardi trophy, but I'd like to give him one of my own. I, I just thought it, it was really interesting because the, the immediate thought came to my mind of the words of, I believe, Thomas Sowell, that the demand for racism far outseeds the supply. And just the way he reacted to the original question, um, and he's just like, oh, jeez, this. Like, you could just tell. He's had enough of it. He just wants to play ball. It's about wins. Uh, the Buccaneers are kind of an unsteady team right now for various reasons. He's trying to win a ball game. This is his job. And then Miss Karen, I think her name is Jenna Lane at ESPN, it was incredibly patronizing. Because so, basically what she said was, no, 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 trust me. I'm a white liberal woman. 
you are oppressed. And you could just tell. He's like, he's like, Karen, please. And thankfully, Todd Bowles has the guts to just flat out say, nah, it's not that important to me. I'm trying to win a ball game. And it goes back to the discussion that you had with Jason Brown a couple of weeks ago about the issue of black coaches and how, look, some of them don't understand. You got to get into this early and it's, it's long, hard hours. Now, for most coaches, you have to be a graduate assistant at college where you're literally making pennies on the dollar and it's not a glamorous job. And even as a position coach, as you work your way up, to maybe a division one power five job you don't start making any money so my view is this todd bowles went through the coaching circuit he put in all that time and he's like i didn't do this as a black man or a white man i did this because my vocation my passion is football and i'm going to make sacrifices in my life that have nothing to do with anybody but me so i'm not trying to represent anybody else but myself as todd bowles so and when people start bringing up, why aren't there more black coaches? I guarantee you, or my opinion is that in the back of his mind, is he saying, well, a lot of my black teammates didn't want to put in the work, and I did. But he, he can never really say it. But I think yesterday he may have said it without really saying it. Do you think the media is going to try to uh, exact revenge on him for not going along with with their talking points because most people just want to get through an interview and so they tell the media what they want to hear and so what jenna lane was doing there or whoever the female karen was what she was doing there is like i'm going to provide you the answer just repeat it and so what right. she wanted him to say yes representation does matter and again we we people we've done this over and over again it's commonplace and, and I'm just wondering if, if he won't be punished in some kind of way down the road this year. Will the criticism be amped up because he won't he refused in this instance to play the race card? Well, the best way to insulate himself is to win. Bottom line, people love winners. They treat people differently when you win. It's called the winning privilege. It's not always fair, but it is what it is. You know, I, I love the fact that Jenna Lane thought she was going to put in a play call, and Todd Bowles just went, Omaha, Omaha, nope, not going with it. I'm changing the play here. I'll be honest with you. As I, as I was looking through all the coverage of the NFL games, now admittedly, I prepare more just mentally for the college stuff on Saturday. I didn't hear one mention of this black-on-black -black battle on the sidelines. No one really cared. I don't even think a lot of the fans that care about it even really brought it up. We're now into the heart of the football season. Get this. The fans actually care about just the results of the game. They're not looking at this as some socioeconomic experiment played out on a gridiron. Um, and I'm just, I'm just really heartened by the fact that Todd Bowles had enough guts not to even give the cliched answer. Because I think a lot of guys do because they feel pressured by it but i've told you this before jason whether it's coaching or actually playing the ones that make it right are the ones that put in a couple things they have a genetic advantage because you got to have the right dna you got to be physically uh, built to play certain sports and number two they survive the process but number three they work harder they're pushed through the system and they have a certain work ethic 
And I think by the time they make it, they look back and say, God, you know what? I'm actually glad I survived all the riffraff, and I'm glad that I was a little bit of a tougher, more disciplined person. But when they're pressed with these type of questions, I think there's a bit of a survivor's guilt where they have to give the cliched answers that they don't even mean because, quite frankly, they don't want the heat that some of their honesty might bring. Well, they don't want the headache. And, right. and, and, yeah. By answering it the way that he did, it creates a news cycle. And, and again, it's going to be in the news cycle anyway, because if he gives them the answer they want, you know, it's going to be, oh, yeah, Todd Bowles and Mike Tomlin and this whole great racial dynamic or whatever. And, and so he doesn't give them that but he gives them something different. And so now they're disappointed that they can't run with the story that their editors had assigned and probably ESPN or someone had packages built and probably CBS, no, it's an NFC and an AFC team. Ain't no telling which network is uh, covering this game or broadcasting this game. But maybe they wanted to build that into the pregame package and Todd Bowles, is saying, no, I, I don't want this to be part of the narrative. It's me and Mike Tomlin, it's the Steelers and the Buccaneers, and I don't want to deal with the burden of this racial dynamic that only serves you. It doesn't help Tomlin, yeah. it doesn't help Todd Bowles, it doesn't help any assistant coach looking for a job, because uh, you know, I, I just, it, it's just so naive, and the whole, uh, insinuation that th what I found offensive and just uninformed is like, oh yeah, you all grew up the same, you all got same experience, and it's just not true. It would almost be like, do you run into every Korean and say, oh man, your experience here in America must be the exact same as mine? I I, I doubt if if that's what you think. Jason, I've literally never been asked that. They just look at us as people, and and I. I hate that whole thing about quote unquote representation. So if you want to boil it down to the Asian Korean experience, the reason why we've done okay, you know, you can call us the model minority or whatever. I don't know if that's necessarily true anymore, but the one of the reasons in my view, having lived through it, why we've been able to actually successfully navigate the American dream is that none of that has been important. Uh, we don't care about if we make a billboard, if we're actually in movies and commercials or in sports. I mean, it's a little bit of a big deal. I still remember when Chan Ho Park was with the Dodgers. It was a big deal for Koreans out here. You'd go to the game. But we understood one thing. At the end of the day, we still got to open up our liquor stores and our dry cleanings, and we got to take our SATs. We were expected to go to college. <laughs> Whatever success Chan Ho Park has, and if he makes a billion dollars, we don't get to live vicariously through it. In fact, I'm very wary when these like K-pop groups like the BTS, whatever those kids are, I don't really listen to them, are visiting the White House. Because now I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, now we're falling into the trap. Uh, I didn't even like it when that one movie a couple years ago won the Academy Award and they trotted out all these Koreans to, to pick up their trophy. And they're saying, oh, this is great. Now we're going to have more representation in Hollywood. And, and I'm thinking to myself, that may not be a good thing. Honestly, because I'm going to ask this question again. As a community, would you rather have one movie star, one rock star, uh, one famous athlete, or would you have a thousand doctors, lawyers, accountants, and business owners? Uh, uh, because, again, these symbolic 
figures to me, I think they're very dangerous because of the idolatry that follows. And I, I actually hope that there's never uh, a great big A-list Korean star because you're starting to fall into that whole demonic world of Hollywood and entertainment, which I, I find unsettling. Um, look, when there's an Asian athlete, I'll make jokes about it. But once they're playing a game, um, they're an athlete to me. They are a piece of programming that I choose to enjoy over my television set uh, once or twice a week. That's it. And so Jenna Lane's question of, oh, no, but these kids see you. Can I be honest with you? Jake, let's be honest. Right now, there's no kid in an inner city that actually says to himself, wow, I want to be Todd Bowles and wearing a headset. They're not thinking that. That That is such a patronizing, phony question to ask that somehow Todd Bowles is a figure who's making a very nice living through his sacrifice, hard work, and his um, ability to reach people. But there are no kids, in my view, that are looking themselves, yeah, I want to be the next Todd Bowles. That whole thing was shambolic. It, it, two things just happened. One, you just made a great point. And, and, cause I think I the reason <laughs> why I was into Mike Royko is because one, his work was the best. It was entertaining and he was recognized as that. And so when I changed to journalism, I just, I just want to be the best. So let me model myself after the best. And I'm sure there's black kids, white kids, Asian kids that love basketball that sat around and said, I want to be Michael Jordan. I, and again, it's an unrealistic goal, but th that's, if they like basketball, that's who they were patterning themselves after. They weren't, th there aren't many, I don't think Asian kids that like, like basketball, their real role models, Michael Jordan is not Jeremy Lin. They got no problem with Jeremy Lin. Right. They, they, they like Jeremy Lin, but it's like, if you're a real competitor, it's like, I want to be Michael Jordan. That's one. The more important thing that just happened here, Steve, that, that, and I say this in all seriousness, and, and you just use the words demonic and idolatry. And I love it because this show's having an influence on you. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but I love it. Uh, thank Jason, you can for I, doing that. I, can I make yeah, one point? Go the ahead. closest any, yes. the closest any average Asian, uh, kid, teenager, female, or male is going to get to Michael Jordan or being in the NBA is actually buying the Air Jordans. And we're good at it. We, we get the shoes. We've probably got there, – there are so many sneakerheads that are Asian. And I said, you know what? As long as you realize that's as close as you'll get to the NBA and you're getting a good SAT, you're on the right track. Just just stay Asian. You're, you're not making the NBA. You're not. That's the reality. I, I love your point, though, too, and you've made it before, but I love your point that, like – Asian people aren't concerning themselves with representation in Hollywood. Yeah. And that's actually smart uh, that, that, oh my God, we can't have success unless we see it on some Hollywood screen or on some television screen and let, we don't get that representation. And, and it's like, nah, that's just not true. It, it's Jason, what, do I do this homework or not? Go ahead. There was a show a couple years ago, I tried to give a shot. It was called Fresh Off the Boat. It was about an Asian family living. It was based on a true story of some guy that's a chef. I, I gave it three episodes and I wanted to shift that boat back and sink it like the Titanic. It was an awful show. Just the fact that there were a lot of Asians meant nothing to me. I did not think it was a good show. And it, you talk about how they start to patronize you with the representation card. 
if Hillary Clinton ever came to Koreatown or any Chinatown across the country and was campaigning or any Democratic or any politician and out of her purse whipped out a packet of soy sauce, I would hope to God we stab her with chopsticks. But they don't do that to us. And the fact they don't do that to us, I think is a great thing because it just means we are not going to let a politician, hopefully, and I think it's actually changing, unfortunately, we're not going to let a politician drive us from a cultural standpoint. I think that's the overall point I'm trying to make here. All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Join the Fearless Army. You can also find us anywhere uh, podcasts are available, particularly on Apple. Give me that five-star review. Uh, leave a comment. I love to read them. You can email me and the show at fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Don't forget to pick up your Fearless Army swag. Hit that subscription button. And we'll see you on Monday.